Thanks for coming tonight. We're starting a brand new series tonight called Mountains that for the summer we're going to look at uh, the different mountains in scripture where big things happened. People met God on the mountain and, and we're going to look at some of those narrative passages. But tonight, as Brian said, we're going to start with Mount Ararat. But before I start, I have a question. Who here was born in the 90s? Great, thank you. So was I. I was born in 93. Don't do the math. Then you can figure out that I am now 30, and that's just a scary thought, but that's beside the point. But because I was born in the 90s and I lived in a Christian home, that means that I grew up on probably the most famous kids' Christian video series Veggie Tales. So I've actually um, asked Brian Niemeyer to come and sing some silly songs with Larry tonight. Oh. Where's your hairbrush, Brian? <laughs> the difference between Brian and Larry, though, is Brian actually does need a hairbrush. So <laughs> see, veg Veggie Tales, like as a kid, it felt normal. <laughs> Have you ever considered how... How weird Veggie Tales is! Right? Like, there's this, there's these two hosts, right? And uh, one is this like tall, skinny cucumber named Larry, and he has the voice of a 13-year-old boy who hasn't gone through puberty. And then there's this like large, round tomato. Don't worry, tomatoes are a fruit; they're not even a vegetable. Veggie Tales, right? And he's like stubborn and kind of annoying. And, and they take you through all these Bible stories, and. And they take a break from the Bible story, and then they sing silly songs with Larry, and they sing love songs to cheeseburgers and hairbrushes. And then we all wonder why we didn't grow up with water buffalo, right? Like, where's my water buffalo? Why can't I have a water buffalo? Yes. <laughs> Joseph, I'm right up your alley tonight. <laughs> oh, man. See, VeggieTales... They had a problem, though, that every, like, kids' movie about Bible stories or every, like, nursery picture wall or every kid's Bible, they all have the same problem. How do you take Bible stories and make them G-rated? <laughs> I mean, just think about some of the stories, mostly from the Old Testament, that in no way are appropriate for me to read to Matthias, right? Um... <laughs> How about David and Bathsheba? Yeah, let's not go there. Or Judah and Tamar? Or have you ever read the account of Elisha and the she-bears? If you haven't, oh, that'd be some interesting reading for the week. Put that in Bible Gateway and find out where that's located, right? <laughs> There's some hard texts. And to their credit, VeggieTales has stayed away from a lot of those hard ones, right? But they've ventured into a, a, a couple texts that you know, are, are a little challenging. I remember as a kid watching the VeggieTales version of Esther. You watched that one? Yeah. Right. Um, where if you read the like biblical account of Esther, Esther is not G-rated. It is not PG-rated. It is incredibly scandalous, if we're being honest. And I mean, the Bible is, it, it talks about it in an appropriate way, but once you figure out what's going on, you really shouldn't make a movie out of it. But VeggieTales does. In the text, right, Queen Vashti is asked to come and dance for the king and his friends, right? And very wisely and appropriately, she says, no way, I'm not doing that. She gets fired from being the queen. And then the king goes on this two-year beauty pageant hunt to find a new queen. There's immoral overtones throughout the entire book, right? So what does VeggieTales do? 
Queen Vashti is fired from being queen because <laughs> she didn't make the king a sandwich. <laughs> Creative, right? Creative. And then Esther becomes queen after winning Persian Idol, not American Idol, Persian Idol, with her stunning singing voice, right? It's creative, I'll give you credit. But for years, at least the OG Veggie Tales, they didn't touch our account tonight with a 10-foot pole until 2015, when rebranded Veggie Tales decided that they wanted to recreate Noah's Ark. <laughs> I, I don't understand. Where the Ark was a giant orange slice. <laughs> like, who comes up with that? An orange slice. <laughs> but I'm convinced that we have the account of Noah's Ark all wrong. All wrong. It's an account that lines the hall of church nurseries and kids' bedrooms. And we have these pictures of a ark that looks like a zoo and everyone's having a great time. And I think I want to go there and, and visit the world's first ever zoo, right? Isn't that what that looks like? But when we actually start to consider what was going on in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, it didn't look like this. It looked a little more like this. See, Noah's Ark is not this lighthearted children's story. Noah's Ark might be one of the most significant tragedies that we have in all of Scripture. This isn't a rosy picture of a zoo. This is maybe the most significant picture that we have of God's judgment against sin. I think often we get Noah's Ark all wrong. So to start, I, just, I wanna do a little trivia, true and false trivia to see how well we understand the account of Noah's Ark. True or false? Noah and his sons spent 120 years building the ark. True or false? <laughs> Bex just graduated from seminary, and you are correct, Rebecca Rice. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, they mention 120 years, but that isn't referencing how long it took to build the ark. So Bex is right. Okay, Bex, you're silenced from now on. <laughs> how about this? All animals came to the ark in pairs. True or false? Okay, I always thought that was true. And then I'm reading commentaries for this, and I'm actually reading the text. So the unclean animals, they came to the ark in pairs, but the clean animals, they were seven pairs. They didn't teach me that in Sunday school. Oh, I learned that last week. So if you knew that before me, then, well, congratulations, I guess. How about this? Noah preached to his neighbors while he was building the ark. True or false? Maybe, right? I see Susan going like this. I don't know. The only evidence that we have is Peter calls Noah a herald or preacher of righteousness, right? So we don't really know if that means that he was actually, while he's building the ark, telling everyone to repent. Uh, the text doesn't say that, so I, I don't know. I think sometimes we get the account of Noah's ark wrong. So tonight, we want to try to understand the account and some applications from it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 6. We're going to cover Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 tonight. And don't worry, I'm not reading all four chapters. Um, otherwise, that would be the rest of this. Maybe I should do that. I'll just read the four chapters. I'll close my Bible and pray. 
Um, no, we're, <laughs> we're not doing that tonight. So I'm not sure what your exposure is to this account. I'm not sure if you grew up in the church and you've heard the account of Noah's Ark over and over again. I'm also not sure, maybe you didn't grow up in church and your only exposure to Noah's Ark is going to everyone's favorite water park down in the Wisconsin Dells, right? But wherever you fall in the spectrum, we all have some exposure to this account. We all know about this literal or mythical man named Noah and the animals that survived a global flood. So one of the first questions that we would have then is this. Did, did this actually happen? Like, was Noah a real guy? Is this account literal? Was the flood literal? Was this metaphorical? You know, as we try to maintain a high view of Scripture, believing that the Bible is both inspired, exactly what God wants to say, and inerrant, without error in the original writings, to me, the Bible's pretty clear that this actually happened. As I read Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, the author of Genesis, which we believe is Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch later after these events, probably recorded some oral traditions. Moses doesn't treat this as a parable. He treats this as historical. But then we flip over into the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 24, in a text that we might call the Olivet Discourse, did you know that Jesus talks about Noah? And Jesus treats Noah as historical. And then the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, verse 7, he treats Noah as historical. And then Peter, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, both references Noah and treats him as historical both times. So I think as we read scripture, the Bible treats Noah and the flood as a literal historical event. So that's how we're going to approach the text tonight. Now, some Christians disagree on whether the flood was global did this thing cover the whole earth? Or was it a cataclysmic regional flood? Um, and that's a semantics language conversation that we don't have time for today. Um, but we're going to treat the flood as historical and literal. So that's what we see uh, in our text tonight. Now, as we read through this, I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but I was amazed at how many things the author leaves out of this account. Did Noah face persecution when he was building the ark? I would think so, right? I mean, I can imagine that he faced ridicule from friends and distant relatives as he's spending years, probably decades of his life, building this giant wooden coffin. That's what it would look like. But the text doesn't say anything about the ridicule, so we're not going to go there tonight. Or what about the people that lost their life? What about the people who died? Were they repentant? Did they try to cling to the side of the ark, but then ultimately drowned? Did Noah fall asleep that first night on the water, listening to the cries of the people begging that he might open the door and save them? You know, that'll preach really well, but it's not in the text, so we're not going to go there tonight. So why did Moses, when he recorded this account, leave out those type of details? Because God's focus in this text is not on the evil in the world. God's focus in this text is not on global destruction. God's focus is on his faithfulness to fulfill his promise to his people. The focus is on Noah and Noah's family. Now, I'm going to give you the big idea tonight even before we start. So I won't leave you in suspense. Here's the big idea from our text. God simultaneously judges sin while preserving his promises. God simultaneously judges sin while preserving his promises. 
if we're going to understand Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, we have to go three chapters earlier in the book of Genesis, and we have to understand maybe, maybe one of the most important single verses in all of Genesis. Any idea what I'm talking about? It's the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, Genesis 3, verse 15. This is right after Adam and Eve, they sin, they break God's only rule, sin enters the world, and then God is having a conversation with Adam and Eve and he curses the serpent. But here's what he says in Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the first gospel, the first proclamation of the good news because God is prophesying, he's foreshadowing a day when someone will come and crush the serpent's head. And as biblical authors reinterpret this text, they make an important distinction between your offspring and her offspring. Any idea what that word actually is? Seed. It's the word seed. It's not seeds. It's seeds, singular. Looking ahead to the one offspring of Adam who someday will crush the serpent once and for all. But think about Noah's day. There's more evil in the world than anyone can imagine. And it looks like God's promise in Genesis 3 verse 15 is in jeopardy. There's so much evil. How is God going to crush Satan? How, what's going to happen? Can God fulfill his promise? But what, what God does is he preserves Noah and his family. Then some might wonder, is, well, is Noah, is, is he the seed? Is he the one who is going to crush Satan's head once and for all? Nope, he wasn't. You finish the rest of chapter 9, and you realize that Noah was anything but a perfect guy. But he did win a decisive battle against the enemy. But as the text of the Bible continues, the, the seed becomes more and more clear as God makes promises to Abraham and David and prophecies through Isaiah and through Jeremiah and the rest of the prophets that the seed is Jesus. When he came and he crushed Satan's head when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. But Noah, even in this text, serves as a type of Christ who is to come. So we gotta make sure we understand Genesis 3 before we look at our text. So I'm gonna start in verse five, Genesis 3, verse five. Follow along with me, I'll just read a couple verses. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted, we'll come back to that, that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's an interesting word, regretted, isn't it? I read that in the ESV, and to me it sounds like God didn't know the future, he didn't see the future, he discovered the future as it happened, and then all of a sudden he got to Genesis 6, and he was like, why in the world did I create mankind? That's what it sounds like, but that's not at all what this text means. The word there, regret, has a Hebrew word, nakam. It has a broader semantic range. Based on this context, it means that the Lord was grieved. And that fits in with the next line where the, the ESV says it grieved him to the heart. Uh, that literally means that God felt pain. He was pained in his heart. He was grieved that he created mankind. Forgive my double negative. God didn't regret that he had, well, that's not double negative. God didn't regret that he made mankind, but instead he was grieved. His heart hurt. 
when he saw the sin and the wickedness and the evil that existed in the world. His heart was grieved. But there was one man that stood out from among the rest. There was one man who had a, a right relationship with God, and that man was Noah. And then his family, his three sons and their wives. Some people estimate that at this time, the population of the earth was about two million people. A lot of people. But Peter tells us that there were only eight righteous people on the earth at this time. Noah, sons, his wife, and their wives. Eight people. So let's assume the commentators are right. Eight righteous people, two million evil people, and Moses says that every thought, every intention of their heart was to only do evil continually. That's not a very good ratio. If you do the math, eight million or two million, eight people, that's one righteous person for every 250,000 evil people. I chuckle just a little bit when someone will say, man, the world that we live in, the world has never been this bad before, ever. <laughs> then you read this text, you're like, yeah, our ratio today is a little better than one to 250,000. That's for sure. So we're not quite as bad. It'll be a while until we get quite as bad as what Noah witnessed during his day. But as the Lord looked out, he saw the corruption and the sin of the world. He decides to destroy the world with a flood and then restart with Noah and his family. It was a, a cleansing of sin that would follow Genesis chapter 3. Think of what God said in Genesis 1, verse 31, he saw everything that he made, and it was very good. But then the fall occurs, and just generations later, look what God says in Genesis 6, verse 12. It reflects the language of Genesis 1:31. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We went from a world that was very good to a world that was completely corrupt. God looked upon his creation with a completely different perspective. And he decides to flood the earth. Look at verse 14. God's talking to Noah here and he says this, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Anybody have any clue what gopher wood is? Yeah, me neither. Nobody knows. Um, maybe it was cypress, maybe it was pine, doesn't really matter, but uh, no idea what type of wood that is. Then God says, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Maybe you have a footnote on the bottom of your Bible that says a cubit is about 18 inches. That's probably correct. So 300 cubits, do the math, that's a 450 foot long ark. That's like a football field and a half. That's a big boat. It has three decks. We're going to find out in just a moment. One commentator, many commentators believe that this size of a boat could have held between 10 to 20,000 sheep-sized animals. Like that's, that's a big boat. Verse 16, make a roof for the ark, finish it to a cubit above, set the door of the ark in its side and make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come to the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kind, of creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every short sort shall come to you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that's eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Don't miss verse 22. Noah did all of this. He did all that God commanded him. Would you have 
responded? Would I have responded with obedience that quickly? <laughs> to make a 450-foot-long box of wood? I don't know. I think I probably would have pushed back a little bit. I don't know what gets what all of us want. Don't we all at some point, if we're honest, want to hear from the Lord on what we're supposed to do? Go to this college, take this job, marry this person, move to this town. Like, it'd be amazing if the Lord would speak to us. That doesn't always go very well in Scripture, does it? I mean, think of, think of Moses. God appears to Moses at the burning bush and says, Moses, you're going to be my guy. You're going to rescue my people out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. And what does Moses say? You got the wrong guy. <laughs> I can't even talk in front of people. <laughs> Can you find somebody else? And God is patient with them. Or how about Gideon? The Lord appears to Gideon and tells him, Gideon, you're going to be my man. You're going to defeat the enemy. And Gideon's like, yeah, I don't think so. You've got the wrong guy. So he puts God to the test and comes up with this weird trick with dew and a, a sheep's hide, right? Not a good example. Or how would everyone's favorite, <laughs> Jonah, right? God says, Jonah, I want you to go preach to Nineveh. And then he goes all the way to Spain, to Tarshish, tries to want to run away from God. Yeah, that worked really well for Jonah, didn't it? See, we, we want God to speak to us. We want God to give us those clear directions. It, it didn't really work well for those three guys. But look at, look at Noah. Noah got like the craziest command of all of them. And Noah doesn't delay. He doesn't complain. He doesn't push back and say, seriously, you want me to do that? Some people think he'd never even seen rain before. You want me to spend decades of my life building a giant box? He doesn't do that. He obeys without delay. And as we look at the rest of Scripture, the author of Hebrews helps us uncover Noah's motivation for his obedience. Listen to this. This is in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Hebrews 11 is such an important chapter in scripture because it helps us understand that the Old Testament saints, they weren't saved by works. They were saved by faith in God's coming promises that all people throughout all time have always been saved by faith, never by works. Mo Noah looked ahead to God's promise. Like Noah, we look back, but we also look forward. Because like Noah, we live in this in-between where we look back at what happened on the cross, but we're still waiting for the day when those promises are completely fulfilled. Just like Noah, we're also saved by faith, right? There's there's not a, enough good things that we could do to earn a right relationship with God. We each have to come to a place in our life where we say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he saved me. But Noah helps us understand that, that works don't save us, but saving faith is a faith that works. Saving faith is a, a faith that influences our life. That was exactly what happened to Noah. His Faith was evidenced by his obedience. See, Noah could have said, yeah, God, I believe you. I believe you're going to send rain and then never built the ark or procrastinated or come up with a million excuses why he should never have to build the ark. But he didn't. 
he obeyed without delay. And the author of Hebrews helps us understand that his motivation for obedience was faith. He had faith in God's promises. And the same is true for us, that when we place our faith in Christ, he becomes our savior, but he's also our Lord, our boss, our king. And we give him the keys to our life. We live in allegiance to him, not as a way to earn our salvation, but a way to respond to the faith inside of us. So in Genesis chapter 7, the floodwaters arrive. And (laughs) the text tells us that the waters came from below, they came from above. I can't even imagine what that would have looked like, but it would have been furious. And it rained on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Does that number 40 ring a bell? It's a lot of rain. (laughs) That is true. It's the reason it covered the earth with water. See, the number 40 is significant in Scripture, isn't it? We hear that over and over again. Think of how it's used. The spies were in the land for 40 days. Moses was on top of Mount Sinai receiving the covenant for 40 days. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tempted after spending 40 days in the desert fasting. God provided Nineveh 40 days to repent or face destruction. 40. It's synonymous with with purification, with cleansing, or with preparation. And that's the use in Noah's account. Even though 40 is likely literal, it's also symbolic for a way to say that the sin of the earth had been cleansed or purified. Now, if we look at the literary feature of this account, if we looked at the Hebrew in Genesis 6.10 to 9.19, the text would be a giant chiasm. Now, if you came to Third Monday last month, Andrew explained what a chiasm was, and you all received your seminary education, right? But how a chiasm works, it's reflective. One part here meets another part here, and then they, they all kind of talk about the same thing, But the focus of a chiasm is what's said right in the middle. The middle of our text is just the first couple words in Genesis 8, verse 1. Look at what that says. The first four words are this. But God remembered Noah. Now, again, I'm not a big fan of the word remembered. It makes it sound like like God forgot that uh, he was kind of like the cupbearer in the account of Joseph when Joseph, or when the, the cupbearer finally made it to the king, he just forgot that Joseph existed and he was still living in prison. Like, no, God didn't forget about Noah. What that word in Hebrew means, that God is about to take action, that he's going to fulfill his promise. In a moment when Noah might have wondered, it's been raining for 40 days straight. Did Did God forget about me? No. God was about to take action. He he sends a wind to blow over the earth and the water subsides. But Noah was on that ark for a year of his life. That doesn't sound like a dream to me. That sounds like a nightmare. You know, as I was reading some of the commentaries, I discovered something in the Hebrew text that isn't in our English Bible. Did you know that they created a board game on Noah's Ark? It's in the Hebrew. It's the game that all Christians play, Settlers of Catan. 
I mean, imagine they had all the sheep, they had all the wheat, and like, and like every game of Catan you've ever played, there's never enough ore, right? Because they didn't bring ore on the ark. So I can just imagine, it's in the Hebrew text, I can just imagine that Noah and his sons had all these like fist fights over all these Catan games, just like you guys have, right? Yeah, okay, maybe that's not in the text. But there is something in the text that after that year that the ark lands on what the text says is Mount Ararat. Now, what's consistent, and not the only time this happened in Scripture, the Bible will say Mount Ararat. It's actually talking about a mountain range, not just one mountain. So if you go on YouTube and type in Mount Ararat, there's going to be all these vloggers that say, we found the mountain. Yeah, we're not really sure which one it is. There's even going to be more vloggers that will try to convince you that they've found Noah's Ark. Yeah, they haven't. Don't believe them. Um, but this mountain range is in the western or the eastern part of Turkey. It's a beautiful, fertile area. The range is 17,000 feet above sea level. It was a very gracious place for the Lord to direct the ark and allow it to land. A beautiful mountain range in Turkey. And then Noah opens the door and he gets off the ark. Now, this is a little risky but I want to ask a question that will allow for a little bit of feedback. So I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of Noah. If you were Noah, you'd spent a year of your life on the ark, you'd played a hundred games of Settlers of Catan, right? (laughs) And you walk off the ark, what's the first thing you would do? What do you think? If you were Noah and you had just gotten off the ark, the first thing you'd do is look for ore, right? Yeah. No, what, what, if that was you, what would you do? What's the first thing you do? Okay, so you'd rejoice that you're not seasick anymore. That's a good one. What else? What is the first thing you'd do? What? Lay on the ground. Kiss the ground? I don't know. That'd be weird. Yep. What, what, what else would you do? Go get chocolate milk. They probably didn't have chocolate milk on the ark. That's fair. It would have just been, as I called as a kid, vanilla milk, not chocolate milk. <laughs> How about one more? What would you do? Find food. That's fair. Yep. Run away from your family. Hey, I'll see you guys next year. Right? And I like that. Okay. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. I want you to notice what Noah did right when he stepped off the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Man, the first thing that he did was have a worship service right outside the ark. And when you offered a burnt offering as a Hebrew, the whole animal was consumed. So it wasn't like he was using his Weber grill and then having some of the meat afterwards. No, the, the whole animal was consumed. There's nothing left for him to eat. And imagine the sacrifice that this would have been. There wasn't an unlimited amount of resources. There wasn't an unlimited amount of animals. The only animals that he had to sacrifice were the ones that were on the ark. And the first thing he does is offer a sacrifice to the Lord as a way to say, thank you. Lord, thanks for getting us through. Thanks for bringing us to dry land. Thanks for our chocolate milk, right? 
And the text says in the next verse that the Lord was pleased with the sacrifice. It almost ties the bow on the whole flood. The final moment of, maybe we could even say atonement, of the sin that occurred. So as we enter into chapter 9, we uncover what theologians might call the Noahic covenant. Noah's covenant. This text we saw in chapter 6, the word covenant, is the first time we see that in Scripture. It's something that was familiar to Moses' audience, also to Noah's audience. It's a word that means a pledge. God made a pledge through Noah to the entire world. And part of the covenant includes a, a new guidelines for people, a renewal of the creation mandate, but also a promise from God. Look at 9 verse 5. This is part of the covenant. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Okay, pause there. Is that what you would have expected out of the Noahic covenant? Moses walks off the ark, and then one of the first things God says is exactly what you think it is. That's capital punishment. Is that what you'd expect? <laughs> I didn't expect that. But this is where many would look as the first, the institution of capital punishment in Scripture, which when someone willfully, maliciously, intentionally murders another person, God gives permission to mankind to take the life of the murderer. That's what this is talking about. Why in the world is that in Genesis chapter 9? Well, I have an idea. It didn't take very long for the first murder to take place. One generation, Adam's sons, Cain killed Abel. And if I had to guess, from Cain and Abel all the way to Noah's day, that wasn't the only murder that happened. When we see the evil and the intentions of the human heart that Moses talks about in chapter 6, I'm guessing that one of the sins that was committed over and over and over again that caused God to bring the flood to the world was the sin of murder. And as a way, in some ways, to raise the stakes, God institutes a new rule. But did you see the foundation, the reason, the why? It was the end of verse 6. Because God made man in his image. The Imago Dei. There's a lot of speculation on <laughs> what, what does that mean that we're creating God's image? But in some way, without diving into that today, we're created in the likeness of God. That for someone to intentionally, willfully, maliciously murder another person. They're not just sinning against that person, they're sinning against God. It's an affront to a holy God. Because we, all people, are created in God's likeness, in His image. So some look at this text then and say, okay, great, Christians, we're all on board for capital punishment. And there's at least two different groups of people in the room tonight. Some of you hear this and you're like, yeah, we've got to be tough on crime. And then others of you are like, I don't really like that idea. One of the challenges with a text like this is when theology meets reality. 
Let's just think about what that means in America. The death penalty was reinstituted in our nation through a Supreme Court decision in 1973. Now, before that, the death penalty wasn't always used the best in our country, like insert the Salem witch trials, right? Not good. But since 1973, not going even farther back, since 1973, one in eight individuals who received the death penalty were exonerated after their life ended. In other words, one in eight people were found not guilty after they received the death penalty. One in eight. There's no way to bring that life back, is there? So there's some Christ followers who look at a text like this and say, we need the death penalty in our country, so let's, let's uphold that, let's keep that. There's other Christ followers who look at a text like this and say, yeah, I, I believe that God allows for capital punishment, but justice in our country can, and truth can sometimes just be too hard to ascertain. And so that we don't put to death people who are innocent, I'm going to reject the death penalty. So there are Christ followers who would fall on either side of that discussion. And I think that's one of the things that we can agree to disagree on as a practical application of this text. So it was a little bit of a theological tangent, but I think important for us to consider as we look at the Noahic covenant. Then verse 7 offers a renewal of the covenant, reflects Genesis 1 and 2. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's just Noah and his family, just the eight of them. Like, if humanity is going to continue, then they better have kids. So that's what we see here. It's a renewal of the same command given to Adam and Eve. But then God makes a promise to all people in verse 11. I'll establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and me and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God makes a promise, a pledge that doesn't just apply to Noah. It doesn't just apply to his his immediate family. It applies to all of Noah's descendants, which do the math. That's all of us, right? God makes a covenant with both people that believe in him, that follow him, and also people that reject him with everyone. It's part of his common grace that never again will he flood the earth like he did in Noah's day. But what's the sign of his covenant? What's the, the bow in the clouds? It's the rainbow, isn't it? It's the rainbow. We think about that, even the, the, the picture, the theology. It's, it's like this picture of, of heaven touching earth, of, of God remembering humanity and fulfilling his promise. The design of this text is every time we see a rainbow in the sky, we're reminded that God is never going to do what he did in Noah's day ever again. But I know what happens the moment that I even mention the word rainbow. that the rainbow is today in our culture, in our world, has a totally different meaning, doesn't it? That it has become so strongly associated with gay rights. And I know believers, Christians that well-intentioned say, we've got to reclaim the rainbow and we've got to bring it back to its original purpose. Um, I'm not trying to be a pessimist, but I kind of feel like 
that ship has sailed. Um, even for a church today to fly a rainbow outside their front door, it only means one thing, that they are not just affirming, but they're celebrating a sexual ethic that's not consistent with God's word. That's what they're communicating. So instead of us publicly on social media trying to reclaim the rainbow, here's what I think this means for us, at least today. The rainbow needs to be an internal reminder of 2 Peter 3 verse 9. Just listen to those words. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The rainbow is a picture of God's patience. Never again will God flood the earth. God's heart, his desire is that people everywhere repent, that they place their faith in Christ for their salvation. Because throughout scripture, we see this dichotomy that we see in our text tonight. We see both judgment and salvation. We see punishment and grace. We see discipline and rescue. But God will never do again what he did in Genesis 6-9 where he floods the earth. He gives us a glimpse into his heart of patience, his desire that people repent. But here's the deal. The time limit on his repentance at some point will come to an end. That's not an offer that's going to last forever. Because God has promised someday in the future that he'll destroy the world, not with a flood, but he'll destroy the world with fire. Just two verses earlier in 2 Peter chapter 3 says this, but by the same word, that's the word that brought the flood on the world, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God's promised that our world today is gonna suffer a similar fate, not the same fate, a similar fate, that the world today, as we see it, will be destroyed by fire. But just as God promised and provided a way of escape for Noah and his family, he will again on that day simultaneously judge sin while preserving his promise. But on that day, the ark is going to hold a lot more than eight people. The ark is going to hold everyone who has placed their faith in Christ for forgiveness. Like Noah, in the years between the promise and the fulfillment, you and I are waiting, we're preparing by faith for the day when God will both rescue his people and at the same time destroy the world with fire. So we're living in this in-between. We're living in this already not yet tension between the promise and the fulfillment. So what do we do? We build the ark. Now, before some of you run outside and start deconstructing the nice pergola we have in our patio, <laughs> we don't build the ark literally. We build it spiritually. We warn our family, we warn our friends that judgment is coming, that God's wrath is coming at a time we don't know. But until that day, there's still time. There's still an opportunity to place our faith in Christ. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you've never repented. Maybe you've never made Jesus the king of your life. Don't wait. Trust in Christ by faith because we're all born sinners. We're born enemies of God. We can't save ourselves. And God has offered us this free gift of salvation through what Jesus has done on the cross, not just to one family, but to the entire world. It's a blanket invitation for you to get in the boat and to place your faith in Christ. 
Because when that door is closed, there is no hope for a second chance. And we never know when the floodwaters will start. Now, if you do know Christ, I hope that a text like this inspires our evangelism. It reminds me that time's limited. It reminds me that the days are short. We don't know when the end is going to come. We don't know when the, the door is going to be closed. So what do we do? We share God's incredible plan of salvation with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers. Because once the day of judgment comes, there aren't second chances. You and I, we, we hold the boarding pass to the ark. More than just one. Right? We hold an unlimited number of boarding passes to the ark. And we have the opportunity to share the good news of salvation with anyone. We have the opportunity to invite people into the greatest opportunity of their lives. Let's pray. Father, you know sometimes we've gotten this account wrong. Um, maybe we've focused on the wrong things in the past. I hope tonight that we centered on maybe some of the main ideas of the passage. Help us understand that you can do two things at once, that you can judge sin while still preserving your promise. And you know that we're living in this already not yet tension between the promise and the fulfillment, just like Noah did. And in this time, Father, help us be obedient, help us be faithful, and may our faith be demonstrated like Noah by obedience and by action. So thanks for the opportunity to gather tonight. May you guide our time as we talk a little bit around our tables. In Jesus' name, amen.